Hey, real quick, I'm going to need a water today, and there's not one there. James, can you grab me a water bottle real quick? Um, get your own water. you got legs. <laughs> Man, I've been busy up here singing, if you hadn't noticed. Yeah, yeah, it's tough work. Dave, uh, James is being a diva again. Could you, um, could you get me a water bottle? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. That, that'd be great. Yeah, okay. Okay. Sorry about that, Kevin. No, take, no, thanks. Appreciate you. Thanks, thanks a lot. So, and now listen to this sermon, uh, scripture passage, which has absolutely nothing to do with what just happened. <laughs> this morning's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is God's word. This is God's word. And I still don't have my water bottle. Hey, Kevin, sorry about that before. I yeah, just had a little. Pretty bad. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, okay. Appreciate that. That's that great. So, thanks. And scene. Mm. All right. Was that. Was that too subtle for you? You guys, you guys get that? We were going to do like. I said I wasn't going to preach, and then Tim said he would, and then he didn't, and then I came up and preached, and whatever. So, but uh, you get the point, I hope. If, if not, if you're new here today, James isn't a jerk, I promise. So, um. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and this uh, passage to you. Lord, it would be very easy for us to conveniently put ourselves in the character of the good guy in this But, Lord, we don't want to get off that easy. We believe, Lord, that there's a lot that you have to say to us in what you had to say to these Pharisees. And we ask that you would meet with us, Lord, that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So a few years ago, there was a college uh, entrance examination board survey of 829,000 high school seniors. And uh, the question that they wanted to rate, have the students rate themselves in certain areas, one of, them, uh, one of the questions asked them to rank themselves on ability to get along with others. Uh, listen to these numbers, okay? Oh, by the way, where would you rate yourself on that? Ability to get along with others. Percentage-wise, are you top 10%, middle of the road, above average, uh, top 1%? Like, think about where you would put yourself, okay? Turns out um, 60% of these students rated themselves in the top 10%. You math majors know that's impossible, right? So... Uh, 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. <laughs> 25 in the top. Okay, um, take a guess. How many people marked themselves below average? 0.00%. 829,000 students. None of them would have ranked themselves as below average in ability to get along with others. That is not just blissfully deceived high school students. Nine in ten managers rate themselves as superior to their peers. To be superior, you have to be... Do the math. Um, They did a survey in Australia. Professionals there, nine in ten of them rate their job performance as uh, higher than that of their peers. 
Um, college professors, yes, I'm looking at you. College professors, nine in ten of them rate themselves as superior to their colleagues. And my favorite, Dave Barry says this, the one thing that unites all human beings, regardless of age, gender, religion, economic status, or ethnic background, is that deep down inside we all believe that we are above average drivers. <laughs> right? They've actually, they did surveys of, of people in hospitals who had been in accidents of which they were at fault, and 75% of them called themselves above-average drivers. So it's very interesting. Um, We all want to think of ourselves as the ones who are in the front of the line, as the ones who are a cut above. It's easy for us to think kind of Lake Wobegon, where, you remember this, that all of the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all of the children are above-average, right? So... um, This passage shows us a group of Pharisees and chief priests who believe that they're at the front of the line. They're the solid top one percenters. They disparage all of the riffraff that have been following this John the Baptist guy in the desert and are now following this Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' amen to them is this. He says, Amen, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. If you're new this morning, a couple of things worth noting. One is that both Dave and James are very nice, helpful guys who were victims of an object lesson. Um, The second that's more important for you to know is this, that um, we're in a series that's called When Jesus Says Amen. And so when you look in the King James and you see the word verily I say to thee, or if you look in the NIV and it says truly I tell you, the word behind that that Jesus is using is to simply in Greek the word amen. Um, it's a word that we often put on the end of a sentence to punctuate something that we are, feel strongly about um, unless we're Presbyterian and then we just say, hmm, <laughs> or that's interesting, right? We do that, so that's a Presbyterian amen right there. That's interesting. Um, but the way that Jesus, he had this unique construct where he would take the amen and put it at the beginning of the sentence to get your attention, to say, now listen, because this is important, which of course, is probably, I mean, everything that Jesus said was kind of important, right? But this is a way that he is drawing us in and getting our attention on these amen sentences. So this is this morning's amen. And Jesus prefaces it with this story, right? There's two sons. You'll see them on the bulletin cover there um, so that we don't have to call them the younger son, the older son, or the first son or the second son. Um, Here they are. Let's just call them um, James and Dave, shall we? So there they are right there. That's, that's James on the left, Dave on the right. And their dad asked them one morning to go and work in the vineyard, and James says, I will not. It's very, um, very emphatic, very rude. If you didn't know what we were up to just a minute ago, you probably thought James was a very rude guy for all that. No explanation, just very abrupt, I will not. And it's worth noting that I would think in our culture too, but, but certainly in that Palestinian culture that to be that offensive towards your father is um, as, um, as wrong as disobedience, right? It's arguably just as bad as what the other son did. And Jesus isn't condoning this guy's rudeness any more than he's condoning the tax collecting of the tax collectors or the prostitution of the prostitutes, but that's the point, is that they repented, They changed their mind. That's one word in the Greek. And it's the same word that's used um, at the end of the passage when he looks at the the Pharisees. He says, you did not repent. It's the same idea. You did not change your mind. So this first guy, he's a mess, but he changed his mind. And he got it right. The other guy, that's Dave. He's right here. Sorry, here's James. 
And he says, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. And then here's, here's Dave. The father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. He's, he, this is the polite, obedient son. And he says two words in the Greek. I, Lord, or I, Father, I, sir. He calls him sir. He says, I will do it. But then just as quickly, Jesus says, but he did not go. He didn't, he didn't do it. He made a very clear, knows what a good son is supposed to sound like, and he, he mimicked that idea, but then he contradicted it by his inaction. He knew how to talk a good story and to say the things that sounded good, but words are cheap, and at the end of the story, we see that the respectful guy is the disobedient one. Does that does this remind you, by the way, of any other parables involving two sons? <laughs> There's two more famous sons live on the other end of the tracks, and the same idea there, right? One was very formal and polite, but he missed the heart of it, and at the end, he's the one outside the feast, right? The other one was the notorious son. We call him the prodigal son. Uh, by the end of the story, which one is the one that's back in his father's house? It's the one who, he changed his mind. He repented. He turned. So Jesus asked the question, which of these two did what the father wanted? And this is a simple answer. It's very obvious. And yet for the Pharisees, it's not a simple answer at all. They are tap dancing in a minefield right now because if you look back at the passage just before this one, they go to Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, by whose authority are you doing all this stuff? By his, what gives you the right to come walk into our temple courts and start teaching people like you're some kind of amazing rabbi or something? What, what gives you the right to do this? And Jesus says in verse 24, he says, I will also ask you a question, and if you answer me, I will tell you by whose authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? And these guys are faced with a binary choice. There are only two options, Right? And yet they know that they're stuck because either way they go, it's going to be self-incriminating. And so verse 25 says they discussed it among themselves and we kind of get into their huddle for a moment and it says, um, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why why didn't you believe him then? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people. They all hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus has painted them into the corner and they come out of their huddle and they say brilliantly, we don't know. So the very next thing that Jesus throws at them is this parable that that we just heard. It's the story of two sons. And then he asks them another binary question. There's only two possible answers. Which one did what was right? And they decide to answer this one, of course. It was an obvious answer. There wasn't a whole lot of getting around this one. It's James. It's the one who did what what, uh, he, he honored the request. He got the water bottle, whatever. But Jesus has just given them enough rope to hang themselves. Remember back in, um, in chapter 15, you'll remember Jesus saying this. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He says, don't just make a, a show of repentance. Repent. Don't just talk about righteousness. Be righteous. Live it out. Don't just say what it sounds like a good, holy person should say, but actually live it out in your actions. Their answer to this obvious question, knows that they know the difference between talking a good story and actually doing what is called, doing what's, what's commanded. And Jesus says, you know, my first question about John, that shows that you didn't believe John's testimony and that he paved the way for the coming kingdom and for the coming Messiah. But my second question reveals something even more amazing. When you saw all of these people 
radically turning away from their sin and leaving their lives of prostitution and of embezzlement and stealing and lying and thieving. All, they, they're leaving, all, the, all these notorious sinners are leaving and they're changing, they're repenting and they're coming into the kingdom. You still didn't believe even after you saw all that. Wouldn't, looking at that, if we had seen all that happening, wouldn't we have said there's, there might be something to this? But they're absolutely unmoved by this. Jesus isn't challenging their answer to the question. It's the right answer. He's challenging the fact that they haven't lived up to the answer. They've just put themselves in the story as the wrong person. And it is easy for us to put the Pharisees in this story as the bad guys in the parables because we know they're hypocrites. Their, their fate has been, their reputation has been sealed for 2,000 years, right? So we miss the fact that this is really a plot twist because back then the word Pharisee wasn't a loaded negative term like it is today. If you want to know the will of God, you go talk to a Pharisee. You want some advice on how to get spiritual advice for your, your marriage? You would go talk to a Pharisee. Do you want to know what it means to discern God's will? You would go talk to a Pharisee. Because these were the holy guys. I like this, this quote from Matt Woodley, author. He says, Jesus takes the most despicable group of sinners anyone can imagine and then said that they were more spiritually advanced than the religious elites. This kind of talk could get a would-be Messiah killed. So it's easy to say, wow, those, those messed up Pharisees, what's harder is for us to figure out where we fit in the story, to put ourselves in there. Which of these two did what the father wanted? The one who did it or the one who just talked about it? And we have to ask, are we mostly committed to just talking a good show or are we convicted to live it out? I think that it's likely, if we examine ourselves, that most of us, apart from the humbling grace of God, would think of ourselves as the good people in the society. We would think of ourselves as the American salt of the earth, God and country, kind of proud to be an American morally upstanding citizens. We would think of ourselves that way. There's an old song by um, Rich Mullins. He's trying to kind of capture that attitude in it. And he, uh, it goes like this. It says, I am a good Midwestern boy. I give an honest day's work if I can get it. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my girl. I got values that would make the White House jealous. I do get a little over-impressed when I think of Peter and Paul and the apostles. I don't stack up too well against them, I guess. But by the standards around here, I ain't doing that awful. That, I think, is the attitude that we could so easily take. Hey, I am no apostle, but I'm a reasonably good person. I'm an above-average worker. I'm an above-average driver. I'm solid top 10% in ability to get along well with others. We put ourselves in the front of the line as the classic, good, salt-of-the-earth Americans. But it is far too easy, I think, for a professing Christian in the 21st century to deceive themselves with a faith that is more of a loosely theistic kind of God and country thing that has little or no bearing on our lives. And this parable is a scary deal because it shows us how important obedience is, how much obedience matters, how a true relationship with the Father is going to be lived out in obedience. It's going to bear fruit. So it invites us to examine our lives and to ask ourselves, am I a Christian because I say I am one? Am I a Christian because I know how to talk the talk? Am I a Christian because I've been around the church lingo long enough to know how to sound obedient? Or is my faith lived out in my actions? We can be professing Christians 
and yet practical atheists. And sometimes we don't do it in every area of our lives, but we certainly can have arenas of our life where we're living like atheists. We would profess Christ over here, but we would say, in this particular area, um, God's will doesn't have a bearing on my decisions or my life, or God's will is not invited into this area of my life. I'll give a couple examples. Um, Three years ago, uh, ChristianMingle.com did a survey. This is a uh, uh, a Christian online dating site, if you're not familiar with it. 700 Christian singles between the ages of 18 and 59 Christian singles were asked, would you have sex before marriage? 60% of them said, yes, they would with no strings attached, casual sex. 60%. Another 25%, 23% said, yes, but they'd have to know that they were in love first. Another 5% said, Yes, but not until engagement. That leaves 11% that said, no, sex is reserved for marriage. Now, if you're confused as to what the Bible teaches on that, come talk to me later. We'll have a wonderful conversation. It'll feel very awkward on both of our parts, and we'll talk about what the Bible says about marriage and sex. But let me just say this. The point is, is that these are not biblically guided answers. The, those, those qualifications that these people are giving are more about what makes sense for us not about what necessarily God is asking us to do or what God is teaching. We're just kind of going, eh, well, if I feel, if I'm in love, I guess if I'm engaged. I mean, we're just pulling ideas out of our armpit rather than taking a look at what God's word actually says and what he wants for our lives. And so what I'm trying to say there is that the vast number of those professing Christians in that survey are living like, for all of their other profession of faith, they're living like um, sexual atheists. God's will isn't relevant here or it isn't invited here into this area of my life. Let me give another example. Um, surveys consistently show that evangelical, Bible-believing Christians give less than 4% of their income to charity. If you add in the broader Christian community, it drops to 2.43%. So Ron Sider says this. Listen closely. He says, For Christians in the richest nation in history to be giving only 2.43% of their income to their churches is not just stinginess, It is biblical disobedience. It is blatant sin. We have become so seduced by the pervasive consumerism and materialism of our culture that we hardly notice the ghastly disjunction between our incredible wealth and the agonizing poverty of the world. Over the last 40 years, American Christians, as we have grown progressively richer, have given a smaller and smaller percent of our growing income to the ministries of our churches. Such behavior flatly contradicts what the Bible says about God justice, and wealth. Those stats suggest that many of us, for whatever else we might profess regarding the gospel, are living like financial atheists. We're saying God's will is not pertinent here in this area of my life, thank you very much, or it's not invited. I will get my ideas elsewhere. Now, if neither of those two arrows hit for you, just you got to ask this question, and there's plenty more. Where is your atheism on display? Or you can ask it the way that Jesus does. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's the heart of this parable. You guys, it's not about just giving the right answer. It's nodding and assenting to the, the basics of the Christian faith. It's not about just saying, I, sir, I will go. It's about actually bearing fruit. And we, if we don't get that from the parable, we can get that from what happened just a couple scenes prior. If you back up, just a, a few verses in the first, uh, uh, what you'll see is before this long extended 
uh, conversation with the Pharisees that includes three parables and a bunch of questions and all that, the thing that happens, the, the event that starts this whole thing off is Jesus cursing a fig tree. Do you remember this? And we look at this thing. Jesus sees a fig tree and he's, there's no figs on it and he curses it and it withers. And we think maybe when we look at it, Jesus was having a bad morning. He needed his coffee. I'm not sure what's going on there. But what, if we don't understand how a fig tree works, we're not going to understand that this image actually carries over for the next two chapters. This image is an incriminating image. Because what happens with a fig tree is the, the, the fruit will come first and then the leaves. That's reverse of the way that a lot of the trees around here work, right? The fruit comes first and then the leaves come. So if you see leaves, then that means the fruit's there already, or it should be. If you see leaves, there should be fruit. But this tree was false advertising. It was professing something that it did not possess. It was saying, I got leaves, I got fruit, but it didn't have fruit. And everything that comes after this is a picture of religious leaders as the fig tree. You flash a good story with your leaves, but there's no fruit there. You are professing something that you don't possess. You are professing a faith that you don't possess. True faith lives like God makes a difference. It lives like God's will matters. That doesn't mean that we will get it right all the time. Of course we won't. That's why we need Jesus. That's why there's a gospel. But it means that the orientation of our hearts, it matters to us what God has to say. And when we realize that we've sinned, it wrecks us. And by the way, that wreck leads us to the cross where our guilt is atoned for and we just feel the the weight fall off. But that, that guilt and that conviction drives us to Jesus. The only one who can meet those things. It causes us to change our minds and to repent and to head back to him. And so we, we, we're asking, if we're honest, that Jesus would come and meet us in the places where, li- where we're living like practical atheists. Or to put it the way I, I heard Scotty Smith say it not too long ago, gospel-informed minds need to become grace-inflamed hearts. It is not enough just to have it here and to say it here. It has to be borne down into our heart, compass, orientation, and our actions, right? Um, one of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor, and um, I think one of her greatest short stories is this story called Revelation. Uh, it focuses on one character in a doctor's office waiting room. Her name is Mrs. Turpin. And all of Flannery O'Connor's stories take place kind of in the, in the deep south, in the era of rampant racism and um, I probably Mrs. Turpin is one of the most blatant characters as it relates to that. She, from her seat in the waiting room of the doctor's office, she judges everybody. She judges the doctor. She judges the teen across the way with acne. She judges the white trash old woman whose kid won't give up the seat so Mrs. Turpin can sit down. She judges the, quote, colored delivery boy. She judges the, the room itself. She judges people's shoes. It says, sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. For her, everything is a hierarchy. And it's people like her and her husband, Claude, who are not at the top, but certainly near the top. She's a landowner. She has a farm. She works hard. She looks down at all the people around her. She blatantly, at various points in the story, thanks the Lord that she was not made to be, quote, white trash or colored. She says, Lord, thank you that I am not like other people. Does that sound familiar? She is the Pharisee. 
And she's looking down her nose at all of the tax collectors around her. But in the course of the story, we see, we get these little hints that everybody's looking down at everybody in the, way, in the room. And eventually, she gets judged for something. And she's, it blows her away. She can't imagine that she, would be, that she who's up here could be judged by somebody who's down here. And in the end, she's standing on her farm in the hog pen, hosing down her, her pigs. And she's watching the sunset, and she has a vision. And O'Connor describes the vision. And I'm just gonna, this is an extended reading, so just kind of jump into the story with me, if you would. I'll put it up here so you can follow along. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives and bands of colored folk in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once at those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet, made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the, cl- the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Amen, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And when Jesus said that, I picture him gesturing to the band of people that are around him. He would have pointed to Mary, Mary Magdalene. She was a prostitute. And so he says, look, these people, this woman is entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And then he would have turned and I think he would have grabbed Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, and said, this man is entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Yes, that Matthew. There's only one uh, of the four gospel writers that, that preserves this story, and it's the tax collector, Matthew, you better believe this made an impact on him. The procession of the kingdom of God is being led by the notorious off-key shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs of people like these, the undesirable, unrespectable, unremarkable, who've repented and who have turned and believed and followed, and now they're the ones at the front of the line. So which son are you? Are you the one that assumes that you are at the front of the line because you have the right answers? Because you know how to talk a good good story? Or are you the one that knows that you have rudely sinned against your heavenly father? 
and have said to him, I will not, but by the grace of God, he has come and he's changed your heart so that you could change your mind so that you have repented and believed and embraced his will for you to obey and to follow. Not perfectly, but decidedly, right? A Christian is not just someone who says the right words. A Christian is not just someone who says nice things about Jesus. A billboard can do that. A Christian is not a Christ promoter or a Christ publicist. A Christian is a Christ follower. Never perfectly, always dependently, stumbling often, but the compass of our hearts is is oriented heavenward. The good news of the gospel has you wanting to live for him. It has you wanting to do the Father's will. I want to end with this. I think in the story that there is an implied third son. He's not a part of the parable directly. He actually stands outside of it. In the parable, there's two sons. There's the one who rudely said no but did it, And then there's the one who obediently said yes, but didn't do it. But the author of this parable and the one who is speaking it is a son who obediently said yes and did it. The right answer and the right action. Jesus didn't just beam down to a cross and die. He came and he lived a life of consistent, perfect obedience. Getting it right 100%. And he was called by his father to go work the vineyard. You recognize that that's us, right? God sent his son to work in his father's vineyard to graft in a people who would be so connected to Jesus that by his obedience, we would bear fruit. That's outstanding. That by his obedience, we would bear fruit. As we're grafted to him, remember when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit Without me, you can do nothing. Stick with me. I'm the one that will help you bear this fruit. But that obedience would, would take him to a cross as well where he would passively surrender to religious leaders who were desperately trying to keep up their charade of being at the front of the line. He did so that, so that we could cut in line. So that undeserving have-nots and riffraff could lead the procession through the starry field shouting Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, you know how easily our eyes could just bounce off this text and keep going. But if we're honest, Lord, we are proud people who have been around the language of grace long enough to know how to sound humble. And we are fickle people who've been around the church lingo long enough to know how to sound faithful. We can speak about grace and then we can turn down our noses at people that we deem to belong in the back of the line because they are a different economic status or a different nationality or a different theological conviction. And Father, if we think that you love us because of our virtues, then our virtues have just been, become the most dangerous of idols to us because they're the virtues that will keep us from the kingdom. But Father, you call us to follow and to die to our vices, but to die also to our virtues. With shocked and altered faces, we see that even our virtues are being burned away. Father, don't allow us to forget that you delight in us because you delight in Jesus, that you hold us in high esteem because you hold him in high esteem, and he's the third brother who did it perfectly and stands in our place. And so, Father, we commit to follow you. We're going to sing a song now to uh, seal that uh, 
uh, that conviction in our hearts. Not just to talk about the importance of following you, but to follow you. So Lord, lead us where you will. Even with our tithes and our offerings, Lord, may we let go of the things that, that bind us so, so tightly against you and give us the will to follow you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.